This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. What are we going to call our fans? I think we should set up a poll. Go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime. Tell us what you want to be called because we've been debating. We've been coming up with lots of different names for our fans, but I think it's important that you guys choose. Yeah, because Grant wants crime dogs and I'm not interested at I think all. crime dogs or cadaver dogs would be a great name for a true crime fan base. Because we don't want to just say, hey guys, every week. Yeah, we just want to say, hey guys. Everyone says that. Anyway, hey guys, we're talking about Joel Rifkin this week, so... I think this is one of America's most notorious serial killers. and Yeah, Joel Rifkin's an interesting one because I think he's well-known in the true crime world, but I've been talking to a lot of people lately who've never heard of him, and I'm like, what? I would say he's actually most famous from his Seinfeld days. Well, not Seinfeld days. Well, not his Seinfeld days. <laughs> That's where everybody knows him from is Elaine's boyfriend. Well, it wasn't him, but yeah, his reference. Right, exactly. He's portrayed on on Seinfeld as Elaine's boyfriend, who is just another character whose name is Joel Rifkin, and he goes through the whole thing. And you know, it's actually a pretty funny episode. So if you haven't seen it, go check that one out. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't know where you would find it, but I'm sure if you just type in Seinfeld Joel Rifkin, it'll come up. Yeah, I'm sure it's on the YouTube's. Oh yeah. So this case starts June twenty eighth, nineteen ninety three, and that's really sort of the end of the story. So. We're going to start with the end and then go back and tell you the rest. So on June 28th, 1993, two New York State troopers were driving along Southern State Parkway, you know, just bebopping, minding their own business, patrolling. They noticed a gray Mazda pickup truck with no license plates on it. That's going to be a red flag every time. Yeah. So normal, regular traffic stop. They light him up, but he doesn't stop. And now the troopers are like, great. This guy just turned a 30-minute ticket into a situation. Whole situation. Yeah. So he starts taking him on a like a slow-speed OJ-style chase at first. It went on for about 30 minutes, and one of the troopers who was in the chase has given interviews saying that he ended up going pretty fast towards the end and even up on two wheels at one point, and he thought he was going to flip over. But he didn't flip over, but he did miss a turn and crashed into a pole. Interesting thing about where he crashed, though, it's right by the courthouse where he ends up going to prison and getting, you know, or where he ends up getting sentenced and going through the whole process. Yeah, it's near it. So after the driver crashed, there was no fight. He just gave up. The cops walked up to the car. They identified him as 34-year-old Joel David Rifkin, and they cuffed him up and put him in the back of the police car because he turned a traffic ticket into a whole fucking evening (laughs) yeah absolutely and 34 i'm 34 right now and this guy gave up his entire life right now i couldn't imagine just could not imagine yeah he just he was like oh okay here we go well when the cops put him in the in the cop car they started to smell something coming from the truck and they had noticed when they put joel in the back of the car that he had noxzema all in his 1993 mustache and it's like joel it's 93 the mustache thing was in the 80s can you pull it together but either way he had all this stuff in his mustache and i'm sure they were like what's going on with this guy 
Yeah, as they should. I mean, who just drives around with Noxzema cream underneath their mm. their nose? And for anyone who doesn't understand, Noxzema is the stuff that your grandma used to use at night to put on her skin to moisturize. So it smells super strong. Exactly. In fact, I haven't smelled it since then. Do they still make Noxzema? I don't know. My grandmother's dead, so. Yeah, I don't know either. So anyway, they smelled the smell. The officers looked in the bed of the truck, which had like a camper shell on the top. Not like a camper. It had like a shell on the top. Okay. And they opened up the shell and they look in the bed of the truck and they see a blue tarp. And they were like, oh. And I'm sure they played rock, paper, scissors or something to see who had to open the tarp. Yeah, that's an awful. I mean, they they know, obviously. They start smelling something well before. They know what they're about to find. Everybody who's ever smelt that smell says it's very identifiable. So I'm sure they knew before they opened the tarp. Right. Of course, inside the tarp, they find 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani. Immediately, they were like, oh, this this sucks. So they went back to the cop car. They pulled Joel out and they said, Joel, what's going on here with the body in your truck? And Joel just casually said, I killed her. She was a prostitute. I can't even imagine how cool that is. Do you think that they just looked at him and were like, what the fuck? What did yeah. you just find? Yeah. He was just callous. He was just like, yep, yeah, I killed her. She was a prostitute. It's like, um, oh my gosh. excuse me. And I've even seen reports that he was real flippant and saying stuff like, it's always a 25 cent part. And I swear there was license plates on the truck when I left home. It's like, Joel. This is the, the point here, man. Yeah. They're going to give you a break on the traffic tickets, dude. <laughs> like, we're way beyond that. Relax. So they took him to police headquarters in East Farmingdale for questioning. And that's where the cops were like, Joel, what's the deal, man? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of my thing. I do this all the time. And they're like, um, you care to elaborate? And he just spilled the beans. They went from a traffic ticket to realizing that they had caught a serial killer. Yep. Like what a what a change of events, you know, just, eh, you know, we're going to. We're going to let him off easy. He's missing his place. We're just going to let him know to, yeah. uh, he's going to do 25 to life. Forget 25 cents. He admitted to the murder of Tiffany Bresciani immediately, the woman in his truck. But he says that it took them like seven or eight hours to get him to admit to the other ones. But once he started, he just, you know, word vomited all of it and just let it all out. It's probably a huge relief for him too. I mean, I would imagine having killed 17 people and just living with that, who are you going to tell? There's nobody you can tell. Yeah. Telling somebody is probably a huge relief off of your conscience. Well, and I guess that's where in the middle, there's been things that have said that when he got back there, after he admitted to the first one that was in his truck, that he asked, do I need a lawyer? And it's like, Joel, I mean, it's not going to help you at this point. But yes, you always need a lawyer, you idiot. Yeah, you always need a lawyer. If you're arrested for something so serious, just you always need a lawyer. You need a lawyer, even if it's not serious. If you're going to talk to the cops, you better have a lawyer. Just get a get a professional. Anyway, after Joel started just spilling his guts, they were like, who is this guy and what in the hell do we have on our hands? So they started looking into it, and what they figured out was that Joel was born January 20th, 1959. He was born to two unwed college students who gave him up for adoption right away. And pretty much nothing's known about his birth parents, because I'm sure that's not something that they're going to be all over. Yeah, they're not coming forward now. (laughs) 
Nope. You know, maybe if he had been some kind of a, you know, athlete or doctor or something, they might be like, hey, sorry about that whole thing. But they they had any idea and they're like, oh, hmm, I guess we made the right move. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and take this one to the grave. <laughs> Good thing there wasn't 23 and me in 93. Yeah, no kidding. Well, there is now. Joel was adopted by Bernard and Jeannie Rifkin when he was only three weeks old. And by all accounts, they were loving, nurturing people. They were both college educated. His dad was a structural engineer and the vice president of the school board. He had a sister named Jan who was adopted three years later. And that's about the time that they settled into their new home on Garden Street in East Meadow, Long Island. They got there when when Joel was just three years old. From what it sounds like, he had a pretty, he was a pretty normal kid. You know, he liked to collect rock. He liked to organize things. Uh, He was into photography and gardening. And those, that's actually pretty interesting because that's what his mom was into. You know, gardening, arts and crafts, along a lot of those same things. And so sounds like from what we know, he had a pretty good relationship with his, his parents and, you know, was was around them quite a bit. And with his mom, which is interesting because a lot of serial killers, that's a whole thing. Yeah. And you know what I think is interesting, too, about Joel is that he was so smart. He had an IQ of about 128, but he also had undiagnosed dyslexia. And he was really bullied in school. The kids from elementary school used to say that he was you know, slouchy and had knocked knees. And he actually had the nickname The Turtle uh, because he just kind of he just kind of had that look about him, just kind of that you know kind of a pointed face and just kind of droopy turtle was the perfect nickname for him it literally fits him to a t and that is why we posted a picture of grant's turtle on instagram what up norman he's a tortoise but you know it's all the same oh sorry it's okay i'm not a biologist so (laughs) um you know what else is weird too that they always say that joel had an iq of 128 and he was this like super smart guy but he had un- undiagnosed dyslexia i wonder if that iq test thing though i wonder if that if they only did it once and they were like oh he has an iq of 128 we're just gonna stick with that it's like what if, i think i feel like that might have been a mistake what if that was wrong because you can watch interviews with him and he's a dipshit now where are we getting the iq of 128 is that from an actual test or is that what joel is telling everybody like no i'm i'm really smart i have an iq of 128 almost everything come straight from Joel. Interesting. Because the victims aren't around to tell their side of the story and their families dispute a lot of what he says and not everything can be fact-checked. Like, how do we fact-check his IQ? Make him take an IQ test in prison? I'm sure there's a BuzzFeed quiz for it, so we can just send him one. Yeah, maybe. So anyway, I just wonder if that was wrong and because his parents were so smart and studious, they were like, oh, he's going to be a little boy genius and then he was an idiot. Right, and maybe he knew that. And they were like, Let's not retest him because then we'll find out he's actually an idiot. (laughs) Or maybe he just made it up. Maybe he heard his parents talking about it and his dad had an IQ of 128 and that's just what he went with because his dad was super smart. Could be. Like you said, he was bullied pretty relentlessly in school. Although the turtle nickname, I don't know, that seems pretty innocent enough, but it got worse for him in high school. Well, it got worse before and before that even. I mean, his parents, though we've talked about him being smart, they let him know at 11 that he's adopted. That seems like the wrong age it is. to do that. It is. I have two sisters who are adopted, and they've always known. But 11 is a really hard age. Like, there's already a lot of stuff going on, especially in a boy's body. You don't need to tell them. Also, you came from some somewhere else. If you, My personal opinion, if you're going to tell them, tell them at the very beginning or keep it a complete secret forever. But yeah. Or until they find out on 23andMe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's when they told him. And it's also around the same time that he started to have these really dark 
fantasies. That are, oh yeah, the gladiator fantasies. Yeah, he just had some really sick, sadistic thoughts that went through his head and obviously he didn't tell anybody what they were well he told the cops because we all know about it he had fantasies that women would fight to the death over him that is definitely a fantasy because that's never gonna happen yeah it's never gonna happen man but like you kind of alluded to though as high school came things really did only get worse for joel he tried really hard to fit in and for me this is kind of where i feel kind of bad for him honestly because he did he was trying really hard to fit in he joined the track team you know wanted just to be a part of what the other kids were doing and it didn't go very well the kids again were not very nice to him and he get but he did get a new nickname lardass perfect your nickname was the turtle why would you join the track team like what in your mind would make you think that was a great idea yeah turtles and tortoises are not known for their speed so but apparently neither is lardass either so no, of course not. But Joel has a tendency of taking things that are not the best and making them even worse. He decided in 1977, after he graduated high school, that he didn't want to go to college a virgin. So his solution was to hire a sex worker to lose his virginity. And then he got addicted to them. I can understand why you would get addicted to it when you really want to fit in so bad and, and you just can't. Yeah, he's been quoted as saying, well, they don't say no. So, you know, they don't turn me down. And it's like, eh, that is kind of sad when you think about it. But sure, of course it is. I don't feel bad for him because this all goes poorly. And I don't know what he thought he was going to gain hiring a sex worker before he went away to college. Like you have sex once and you think college is going to be a giant orgy or what are you thinking? Yeah, it's probably that. I mean, it's probably... Do it once, get it out of the way, and then the next one will come easy because you've got that big thing off of your plate. But as he goes to college, nothing does get easier for him. He he earns only 12 credits, and he's bullied in college, too. And so he drops out. Is college even a place where you get bullied? In college, you just kind of, like, mind your own business. Everybody's an adult. You just go your separate ways, you know? I would definitely think so. I mean, that was my experience in college, but in 1977, when you didn't have the technology that was around, I don't know, maybe people hung out on campus and were more involved in what their, it looks sound like you went to a community college. Maybe they were more involved in what their community college had and what they did, and they stuck around a little bit, kind of like an extended high school. Yeah, maybe. But he drops out because he was, <laughs> he was not busy studying. He was too busy stalking sex workers. So this next couple of years is where Joel really has a hard time adjusting to normal society. He has a hard time keeping jobs and being just a functional adult because he's on he's focused on his addiction of sex workers. So he takes college classes, but he continues to do poorly. And it's, it's assumed that he continues to take the college classes because that's what his parents would have wanted. They would have wanted him right. to continue his education. Right. And he, he's a constant disappointment to his dad, obviously. I mean... This man was an athlete and a scientist and a very educated man, and he had this big doof of a son. I'm sure he felt like a disappointment. Everything I've read says that his parents didn't treat him like that, but I'm sure that's how he felt. So his parents did try really hard to work with him and, and you know, work with him in classes, but things just didn't go well for Joel. And they honestly, they got a little bit worse too as, as time went on because his dad, Bernard, he was diagnosed with cancer in 1986. And by February of 1987, he had committed suicide by taking too many of his pills. And Joel thinks he did it on purpose to not see another failing grade from his biology class because Joel thinks he killed himself so he didn't have to see himself fail anymore. Whether that's true or not. Yeah. And it's like, Joel, 
it's not all about you. Your dad was dying in pain. Like, do you really think his dad committed suicide to not see his failing biology grade? No, absolutely grade? not. No, Give me a break. Not. So in August of 87, though, he was arrested in Hempstead, Long Island for soliciting sex workers. And he's still living with his mom at this point, right? Oh, yeah. He'd moved back in with his parents after college. It goes downhill quickly. He gets arrested in Hempstead, Long Island for soliciting sex workers, which he hides from his mom. And this is what makes him start to go into Manhattan to find sex workers because he feels like he's doing it too close to home. His family's going to figure this out. Right. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that he's also trying to keep a normal life while he's you know, patronizing these sex workers, he's also trying again in school. And in 88, he enrolled in a horticultural program. And this time he actually did really well. And he got an internship at a planting field in Oyster Bay, New York. But of course, that didn't last long because he has such a hard time fitting in with other people. Part of that, too, is because he's spending every every single dollar he has and every free minute he has stalking sex workers and and driving to Manhattan, it's like, how much money are you spending in gas, Joel? Like, geez. So he doesn't have time to connect with his co-workers. But this is also when he starts to obsess over serial killers and starts clipping articles about them and hanging them on his walls. He especially likes researching the serial killers who murder sex workers, like Gary Ridgway, who wasn't identified at the time. He was just the Green River Killer. And Arthur Shawcross, who's another New York serial killer, and he starts having a lot of really dark fantasies and he starts getting overly obsessed with this, you know, obsession with serial killers and loses his internship at the planting fields in Oyster Bay. It's almost like he stopped doing his internship at the planting fields and went into an internship from Gary Ridgway and Arthur Shawcross on how to kill sex workers in New York. I mean, he went from one to the other. Yeah, Well, in 1989, this is where it all comes to a head. So his mom's on vacation, and he picks up a girl known only to Joel as Susie. And they go back to his house, and he said he was frustrated with her because she kept asking him to take her to get drugs. So he says that he beat her with a howitzer artillery shell and strangled her to death. If you don't know what a howitzer artillery shell is, I highly recommend looking it up because... These things are absolutely huge. These aren't just regular bullet casings that plenty of people have in their homes. This is a military-grade piece of our weaponry. So it's really yeah, strange it's why like he a, has it. It looks like a two-foot-long bullet. Yeah, it's nuts. Why do, Why would somebody have a, one of those in their home? I, I don't know. My dad is my dad, so I'm sure he has one of these in his home. <laughs> <laughs> I, could see, I could see your dad having one. A lot of people collect military weapons. That's not uncommon. But next to your bed? Well... I don't know. I mean, I did see a thing that Joel bought it at a flea market. Anyway, he says that she fought pretty hard and that she st- he still has scars on his hands from where she bit him. And, you know, it's it was a pretty violent death. And he's been quoted as saying that he dismembered her with a hobby knife or an exacto knife. I can't even begin to imagine the, the time, effort. And just strength that that would take because exacto knives are, they're sharp, but they're not cut human flesh sharp. No, and they're one inch long. I have blades, exacto knives, everything in my house, and I don't have one that would cut through a human body. Not easily, at least. No, which is, this is another one of those things where Joel is telling the story. So, you know, he says it took him eight hours to dismember her with an exacto knife. We don't know that that's how he did it, but. 
all we have to go on is his word, you know. I wouldn't put it past him. Eight hours sounds I'm, accurate on to dismember somebody with yeah. that kind of weapon or something that kind of tool. Yeah. So he put her head in a paint can and dumped her remains in various canals and wooded areas around New York City and New Jersey. And her head was later found by a golfer in New Jersey. She was a Jane Doe until 2013 when she was identified as Heidi Balk through DNA. So what year did she go missing? 89. Wow. So for 14, no, longer than that, for 25 years almost? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much that is. Hang on. 24 years. 24 years. She went unidentified, and they had her head. You would think if they have your head, they'll be able to figure something out. But in 1989, it was a lawless land. Yeah. In 1990, though, is when he committed his second one, and he killed the second victim, much like he did the first one when his mom was out of town. Uh, Julie Blackbird was the victim this time. And he admits to beating her with a table leg and then strangling her. But he admitted to doing it and dismembering her and putting her in pieces of cement. And discarding her around various canals and creeks around Manhattan again, uh, a la very mob of you know New York, Chicago. Yeah, it is. But yeah, I'm like crazy. we'll leave that to the professionals. But obviously, he got away with it because her body's never been found. So, I mean, well, good news is he started his landscaping business up again in 1991. So at least he was you know up to something. Yeah, and there was a lot of time between the first two murders. There was over a year, and he started to think he was going to get his life back on track. You know, he started his landscaping business, like you said, and from all accounts that I've heard, in the beginning, his business was going okay. I think it probably started off going okay. Yeah. So the break that he took between the first two victims probably was because he was focused on his business, but that didn't last very long because after victim number three... They're just one after the other. It's like he had zero cooling off period after that. In July of 1991, he killed his third victim, Barbara Jacobs. He picked her up and again, he admitted that he beat her and strangled her. But this time he didn't dismember her because from the interviews that I've seen with Joel in prison, he left her in his basement for too long and her body was starting to swell. So he was afraid to cut it open, which is like even... Even somehow it's even worse than before. I know. Like how did how did you make it worse? Because that's Joel's thing. He takes the worst case scenario and somehow finds a way to make it even worse. So he admits that he put her in a cardboard box and threw her in the Hudson River, which turns out to not be the greatest way to dispose of a body because she was found hours after she was thrown into the river. Except police decided that uh, she died of an overdose. Which is crazy. She was beaten. And what do we know what she was beaten with? I'm pretty sure he's admitted to beating her with the same table leg that he beat his second victim, Julie Blackbird, with. I have questions about that table leg, but we can move on from it from that for now. What do you mean? Like, why did he have a bloody table leg in his bedroom for over <laughs> a year? Like, what is he doing with the table leg? Is he putting it back on a table after? Is he cleaning it and reattaching it to a table? You know, a lot of dining room tables have screws you can just take on and off. Or is this something he's just keeping in his room in a closet? Like, I want to know. I want to know more about the table leg, but it really isn't that important just for me and my curiosity. I'm curious. Well, we'll write him a letter. No, I think that sounds nice. Yeah. I I did look up his address, by the way. (laughs) Did you you send anything out to him yet? No, but I did get a P.O. box so that I, when we do send something out to him, we can get a letter back. I know that's so funny. Without telling Joel Rifkin our address. <laughs> so, anyway, it was initially ruled an overdose and it wasn't until he confessed that they 
were like, oh, this was a murder. Imagine being the police and he's telling you these things and you're just like, huh, well, we had that one wrong. The police had no idea there was a serial killer loose. The way he killed them mostly was the same, but the way he disposed of them was so different that they never connected it to one serial killer. And so when he started confessing to these murders, they were like, oh, shoot. I think at that point, too, in society, if they were a sex worker, they were trash. They were nothing. You know, no one really thought anything of them. They they were probably drug users. Family didn't really care about them. So it makes sense. I think you're right. I think that says a lot about the police in that time. Because like you said, she was beaten with a table leg and shoved in a cardboard box and dumped in the river. Even if it was an overdose and they could look over the beating, how did she get in the box in the river? Yeah, you're right. That's another thing like they needed to look into. But in 91, he kills Mary Ellen DeLuca and she wasn't a sex worker. So her family says Joel claims that she was and that she wanted to die and she asked him to help kill her. And so he strangled her and, and disposed of her on at a rest stop in upstate New York. She wasn't found for over a month. Yeah. Which is devastating. In September, in September, that body yeah, was hot. Decom- it was hot. Yeah. It was humid. That body is decomposing. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter if she was a sex worker or wasn't, or if she asked him to kill her or not. Here's the thing. Even if that was true, I don't want you speaking for her. You killed her. Right. You don't you don't get to say how things happened. You don't get to dictate what her last words were. Like, get out of here. Ugh. The next one that he admits to really bothers me because he admitted to knowing her beforehand. He she was somewhat of a friend. I th- well, I think he was a regular. He he patronized her. He was a regular. And her name was Yun Lee. He even said that this one bothered him because he knew her, but he just had this thing in in him that was just overpowering. He just didn't care. His next victim was never found or identified and has just been referred to as Jane Doe number one or victim number six. And it's a confession that Joel made, but they've never found remains to, to compare it to. But he says that he strangled her during fellatio, which is a real risk. Yeah, absolutely it is. How how she didn't just clamp down and bite his little friend Yeah, off, I don't know. I'm like, ooh, yeah, which is another thing. It's like, Joel, are you lying about this? But if he's not lying, this seems to be his new thing. It is his new thing. And he actually introduces something new with this one as well. Which is so weird why he doesn't remember her or why they can't find her and he doesn't remember her name because he did the strangling during oral sex, which is new, which he will then again do multiple times over the next few victims. And he also put her body in a 55-gallon drum and dropped it in a New York City waterway. And this is going to be his method of disposal for the next few victims. So it's like you would think that being so different, he would remember this one better. His next victim was Lorraine Orvieto. She was 28. She was also strangled during oral sex, jammed in a 55-gallon drum, and dropped into Coney Island Creek. They would find her body six months later in July. Number nine is killed in the same fashion where, again, it's another Jane Doe, another... 55 gallon drum well she was dumped in a creek in brooklyn and they actually found her body and she's still to this day a jane doe marianne holloman though is not a jane doe and it was also found that she was strangled during fellatio she was found in another 55 gallon drum yeah where the hell is he getting these 55 gallon drums like would he just come up on like eight drums and he's like oh this is gonna be my jam for a while like what are you doing where are you getting yeah i did read that he well, I read that he got these from a, a past employment opportunity that he had, 
And he didn't work there very long, but he did know that there were empty 55-gallon drums, and apparently there was no one guarding them or no one paying attention because clearly he's just coming in and going as he yeah. pleases. That just struck me as odd because I've dealt with very little 55-gallon drums in my life, let alone eight in a year. Like, where's he getting these? Ugh. After Marianne Holloman, Joel says there was one more victim in a drum in Harlem, but that body's never been found, so they that's never been confirmed. The next one is 25-year-old Iris Sanchez, and she was strangled like a lot of the other ones, but this one's different because she was dumped near the JFK airport in April of 92. This one's really weird in my opinion because nobody found her until Joel was caught and admitted to, to killing her, and they found her under a mattress in a parking lot near JFK. Yeah. She was there. Over a year. For Over a year. Yeah. Under... How amazing. I, I, To me, that's like flabbergasting. It's like, this is by an airport and a busy one. Nobody right. smelled that. Nobody saw anything. Like that, to me, it's like, what does this lot look like that there would just be a mattress there for over a year? Like nobody threw that away? They never cleaned this lot up? Like how? I can't. I couldn't even come close to trying to imagine something yeah. like that. So his next victim was Anna Lopez, who was 33 years old. This was in May of 92, and she was dumped off at Interstate 84. Violet O'Neill was his next one, who was 21, and she was brought back to his house, strangled, and again was dismembered, and parts of her body were put in, again, different waterways. So in October of 92, Mary Catherine Williams, who was 31, was his next victim. She fought super hard, and he tried to strangle her, but he ended up smothering her instead, which is kind of... Ugh. It's like, what do you mean? Like, he just, like, hugged her to death? Like, what does that mean? Or, like, with a pillow? Yeah, I would I would assume that a pillow was... Uh... Yeah, and her body was unidentified for, for almost a year until he was arrested and confessed, and that's how they identified her. 23-year-old Jenny Soto was his next victim who was killed in November of 1992. Again, it was proven she fought hard, but Joel broke her neck and... The fight, the fight was futile. He calls her the fighter because she fought back so hard that she broke all 10 of her fingernails. Oh, my God. So Leah Evans, who was 28, was the next victim in February of 93. And she was the only victim that he buried in a rural area. Even that he was bad at because he couldn't even dig a grave deep enough that when the rigor set in, her hands came up out of the dirt. And that's how her body was found. Oh, my gosh. How absolutely awful and yeah terror all of it none of it's good no so lauren marquez is killed in april of 1993 and she's a 28 year old girl from tennessee her remains were not found until june of 93 and it wasn't until august that her body was even identified by police june 24th 1993 tiffany the one who started this all was strangled in a parking lot joel then put her body in the trunk of the car which he happened to be driving his mom's car at the time Oh, man. Yeah. And he stopped at the hardware store, bought the tarp, wrapped her up in it, and got home, and his mom needed her car. Oh, jeez. When he got, by the time he got home, it was morning. She was like, Joel, why do you have my car? I need to go to the store. And she just took her keys, and she left with the body in the trunk. He had no time to do anything. No. When she got home, obviously she never opened the trunk, because when she got home, she didn't say anything. So Joel opened the trunk and took the body out, and he left it in his garage for three days in June. Oh, my gosh. In June in New York. That No wonder. No wonder he had to put Noxzema on his mustache. 
Yeah, absolutely. Not doing well. Well, and apparently that's why he was driving that night was to go dispose of her body because... Who wouldn't be? I mean, I'm sure that was probably starting to literally starting to wreak the neighborhood. Yeah. After his arrest, he was pretty matter of fact about everything. It almost seemed like he was expecting that he was going to get caught earlier than he was. And he was just kind of like surprised that... It took so long. So by the time they caught him, he was just drawing the cops maps, telling him everything. And when they searched his house, they found Joel kept trophies from each victim. He kept things from them. What was he keeping? Like library cards and IDs and medication bottles and diaries. And he said that he was keeping them because the numbers were adding up and he wanted to remember the sequence and the order. Oh my gosh. So th- not only w- did he keep these things, he had them almost itemized in chronological order so he could keep it, remember what belonged to what victim. Like that's an even crazier. Yeah. Which is why they were able to identify a lot of his victims was because he kept their library cards and their IDs and their medication bottles. If he didn't do that, a lot of these girls I'm sure would still be Jane Doe's and or not connected to him. Absolutely. So we went to trial in 1983, the same year that, that Tiffany Brashani's body was discovered in the bed of his truck. And he tried to pull every excuse he could. He first tried the adoption defense and then he went to insanity. But finally, in May of 94, he was sentenced to 203 years in prison. Which feels pretty good. I mean, New York doesn't have the death penalty, so 203 years sounds fair. Well, especially I think the best part for me is when the judge in the case said, in case there is such a thing as reincarnation, I want to make sure you spend your second life behind bars as well. I love it when judges get all like like heated. I love when that. They act, when they act like real people. I love that because it's like they're literally, I know they're supposed to be like impartial and all that stuff. But when it's all said and done, Joel's been convicted. Right. He's a murderer. So at this point, the judge is like, you suck. So another funny fact is that in prison, apparently Joel does like poetry or art or something. And he wants to sell it and give half of the money to the victims' families, which kind of makes me feel gross. I don't like. Who's that. he selling it to? Just random people? I have no. I don't even know if that's legal. Yeah, I would think it because I know where we grew up. That's not legal because I remember Charles Manson tried to do it, or the it might have been the prison guards would take his art and then try to sell it, and they got in trouble for that. I think it was the prison guards who tried to sell it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember they got in trouble for that. But I wonder if that's just because they worked there. I would assume that, yeah, they got in trouble because they were prison guards trying to make profit off of off of an inmate it would kind of be like an orange and new black when they sell their underwear if the prison guards were taking the underwear off the girls and try to sell it you know it's the same yeah. idea yeah well that's interesting so his mom remained in the house that he murdered these women in until her death in 2010 i don't know that i'd be able to stay in that house after i found out all the things that happened in the house around the house in the garage in the basement yeah absolutely i think i'd have to you know move but who knows why she stayed and well she probably couldn't sell it who the hell's gonna buy that house well i guess somebody did because it sold in 2011 after her death for three hundred twenty-two thousand dollars, which was over a hundred thousand dollars less than the asking price or the comps in the area so i guess a hundred grand is the going murder discount well yeah and i'm sure some of our crime dogs would buy that house too if they could we're not doing crime dogs what's up cadaver dogs oh my gosh Well, guys, we're going to get going because Grant is derailing. Because Grant wants to give you guys a cool nickname. Let him do it. Let him be him. Well, then let them give themselves their own nickname. They don't need you to name them crime dogs.
visit us at our Instagram at from crime to crime and you can vote on your name. But my leading way is either crime dogs or cadaver dogs. That's my, I input. think they're both dumb and we're out. No, we're not out. Oh, we no, have to not. do our outro. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that's the story of Joel Rifkin. And I'm super proud of you, Grant, that you called him Rifkin the whole episode and not Ripkin. Uh, I'm a big baseball fan. So calling him Rifkin and not Ripkin was tumultuous on our recording. <laughs> Don't forget to visit us on Instagram at from crime to crime. Or shoot us an email at fromcrimetocrimepodcast at gmail.com. See you, crime dogs. No, that's super dumb. You don't have any better ideas.